0: We are in Romans 6 today. I want to read for us the first seven verses. We'll be considering uh, at least verse 11 and maybe 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Holland had a hit song back in the 70s that featured this chorus. Do what you want to do, do what you want to do, do what you want to do, but be who you are. Remember it, some of you? Remember that song? I can't help but think that is pretty good theological anthropology. Pretty good biblical description of what humanity is meant for. Except I'd turn it around, be who you are, be who you are, be who you are, and do what you wanna do. If and when being who we really are becomes a matter of routine, we'll pretty much do what we wanna do, and we'll do well. St. Augustine said something similar. He said, love God and do what you want. He could say that because he knew the more we become our true selves, that is the people who love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, the more we become our true selves, the more we will want to do, will really want to do what's right and good for us and for others. But we don't start with doing what we want. Or we really don't start with doing at all. Before we can do what we want, we need to be who we are. And for many of us, that means we need to find out who we are. When Adam made a misstep, remember the biblical words, trespass, he made the misstep, but we all fell. That was last week's text in chapter 5. And we fell hard. We suffered a kind of spiritual amnesia from that fall. We don't know who and whose we are but Christ has brought us back to ourselves. And now it's imperative that we keep in mind our true identity. Do you remember the story of J.C. Dugard, um, the girl from California who was stolen as a child and held captive for 18 years by a a couple who abused her and brainwashed her? For almost two decades, they wouldn't allow J.C. to write her true name. When she was asked her name by them or later on, when she was allowed to go out and, and people could see her, she was forced to reply that her name was Alyssa. While she was in captivity, she bore two children and she was made to tell those children and anyone who might ask that they were her little sisters. Can you imagine how confused her mind was when she was finally liberated? She had spent 18 years, most of her life, being someone else. When court officials became suspicious and questioned her, she told them, my name is Alyssa. And she even defended her her captor as a changed man and a good person. It's hard to overestimate, I think, what those 18 years of captivity would do to a young woman in her 20s. But it's also hard to overestimate what our years of captivity to sin and death have done to us. We need someone to tell us who we really are, and God has done that. We need to keep reminding each other who we really are. As important as it is to do the right thing, that's not where we start. We start with being the right people. The people we really are because of the connection we really have with God through Christ. And that brings us to our text. At the beginning of the last sentence of chapter 5, and remember, this is a letter in which there originally no chapter and verse breaks, just flows. At the beginning of the last sentence in chapter 5, Paul wrote, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's Romans 5.20. Now, Paul was aware, as we saw back in chapter 3, that his critics claimed his teaching gave people an excuse for immorality. His teaching gave them a license to sin. Your teaching encourages people to be immortal. That's what folks were saying. So in verse 1, Paul responds with a rhetorical question. Shall we go on sinning? Since grace increases as we sin more and more, grace increases more and more, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? A literal translation is, shall we stay or dwell or abide in sin so that grace may increase. The word he uses is a form of the same word Jesus used when he said, abide in me and I will abide in you. Shall we abide in sin the way we're supposed to abide in Jesus? Can we do both? Paul's answer is, by no means. Now the Greek is way stronger than that. Uh, When I translated this text in preparation for the sermon, I had to resort to a paraphrase, which is what the NIV and every other major translation does. Though I think mine was a little more colorful. Are you nuts? (laughs) The idea that a person who lives in Christ can go on living in sin betrays a a J.C. Dugard-like ignorance of who we really are. Now... That doesn't mean a person who has genuinely trusted Christ cannot commit sin. We're going to see much more about this in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is really going to be enlightening. But it does mean that a person cannot live in sin and be comfortable and won't stay there who's connected to Christ. Paul goes right on to ask, in effect, if it's possible his readers have forgotten who they are. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? More literally, are you ignorant of the fact that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We're the people whose lives and destinies have been joined to Jesus. Paul says, are you unaware of that? That you think you could just go on living in sin? If we're ignorant of who we are, we can't be our true selves. And if we're not our true selves, we won't do what real Christians do. But again, we don't start with doing. We start with being. And in this passage, there's a perfect balance between what is, that is who we are, and what should be, what we should do. Or we could say a perfect balance between statements of fact, of purpose, and of action. To understand this passage, we need to remember what we saw clearly portrayed in in chapter 5. Humans were equipped by God's design for entanglement. If you didn't hear last week's sermon, pick up a CD before you go and get caught up. For entanglement. We're entangled by design. But entanglement seemed to be a design flaw when Adam tripped and we all fell. But now we get to the other part of the story and we begin to realize why entanglement was a brilliant idea of God's from the beginning. Our capacity for entanglement makes it possible for us to be brought into the glorious, joyful, unending life of God himself. And we're taken into that life through a connection with Christ which this God-designed capacity made possible. Verse 3 talks about it, that entanglement with Christ. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Us who were baptized, this is very important to keep in your mind, us who were baptized is Paul's shorthand for us who were converted, who came over to God's side, and were justified by faith. When he talks about us who were baptized, that's who he's talking about. In our day, we often separate our conversion experience from our baptism experience. I mean, maybe we were in a church where we went to the altar and we prayed the prayer. You know, did you pray the prayer? We prayed the prayer. And a year or two later, and sometimes 20 or 30 years later, we got baptized. In the first century, it wasn't that way. When a person made up his or her mind, and the biblical word for that is repentance... When a person made up his or her mind to follow Christ and confessed Jesus is Lord, he or she was baptized. We say, but Paul, what about the person who really believes but hasn't been baptized? Paul doesn't speak to that issue. In fact, he never spoke to that issue, probably because the idea never even occurred to him. In his experience, confession of Jesus and baptism always coincided. The scholar Douglas Moo says that had Paul been asked that question, what about the person who has believed but hasn't been baptized? His first reaction would undoubtedly have been, why hasn't he been baptized? Did something happen to him? Did, did, Did he fall ill or what? The question wouldn't have made any sense to Paul. We get in trouble when we build a conceptual divide between baptism and faith in Jesus or confession of Jesus, or receiving Jesus. Once that non-biblical divide is firmly in place, you know what happens? We stand on it. It's not even a biblical thing, but we stand on it, and we ask questions of the Scripture that it does not and cannot answer. And then we torture the Scripture with exegetical implements to force it to give us the answers that we want. I'm afraid that Christians have become very good at doing that. When that happens, baptism becomes a mere ritual. Receiving Jesus becomes a mere feeling. And confession of Jesus becomes an option. I say all that because we can get the idea that baptism is merely a symbol, a sanctified visual aid. But that is not how Paul or any of the other biblical writers ever speak of it. Remember, for them, baptism represented nothing less than conversion. Baptism was when a person believed in his heart and confessed with his mouth. It was through baptism, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, that a person was united to the body of Christ the church. Baptism is not merely a symbol. But it is symbolic. And richly so. Baptism is a sort of funeral As C.J. Vaughan put it, it symbolizes the death of the person being baptized. Often when I meet with baptismal candidates, I say something like this. Especially fun when they're the kids. I say, baptism is a sort of play, and you are one of the lead actors. And you know what happens in this play? You die. And sometimes the kids look at me open mouth like, what? (laughs) Are you bringing me back up out of the water or not? Paul explains in verse three, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. When we are baptized, and don't forget in the biblical writer's mind, baptism is inseparable from faith in Jesus, from conversion, becoming a Christian. When we're baptized, we're holding a funeral. We're saying goodbye to someone we've known. That raises the question, but who dies? Who or what dies? What does Paul have in mind? He tells us in verse six that our old self, and in Greek, it's our old man, anthropos, person. Our old man was crucified with Christ. But what is the old self he's talking about? This is an important question. And it's been answered in different ways that actually make a difference how we proceed. Some people have argued that what dies is our old sinful nature. And according to this view, when we died with Christ through baptism, again, that's a shorthand for faith in the Lord Jesus, conversion, becoming a Christian. When we died with Christ through baptism, the nature in us that loves to sin, that can't stop sinning, Died. Proponents of this view warn that we may not feel like our sinful nature died. In fact, it will sometimes feel very much alive. But we must try to believe it anyways. By faith, we must believe it happened. So we mustn't only exercise faith in Jesus, we also must exercise faith in the idea that our old nature died. Some really good people have held that view. People have done great work in the kingdom of God. But I don't think it harmonizes with the scripture or with our experience. The trouble with this view lies in the assumption that Paul uses the term, the old man, which he uses here and in Colossians and in Ephesians he uses it three times and only three times that Paul uses the term, the old man interchangeably with the term, the flesh which the 84 NIV translated as the sinful nature over 20 times in Paul's letters. I don't think that's the case. I don't think those terms are interchangeable in Paul's mind. The old man is not a sneaky and sinful Shane Looper that lurks on the inside, but the Shane Looper that lived in the past before Jesus, before I trusted Christ. The old man is not in me, but in my past. When I trusted in Jesus, the old chain looper, the one who did not submit to the Lord of all the earth and was not a part of his kingdom, died. My baptism was his funeral. It was a good funeral, by the way. should have been there. The chain looper who was a rebel against God, who didn't care about the kingdom and didn't serve his son, died. See, like everyone who will not submit to the king. Remember, the wages of sin is death. But, and this ought to move us to awe and wonder, because of the ingenious way God designed us, don't forget entanglement, that chain looper was able to die in someone else's death. Faith alone actuates that entanglement. I was baptized into Jesus's death for sin. Baptism is a funeral. The old person died. And of course, his debts have been canceled. His name crossed off the list of subversives against God's kingdom. Think of someone who's entered our country illegally and is on the Department of Homeland Security's watch list. But while he's here, he drowns. So Homeland crosses him off the list. He's no longer one wanted man. He died. Baptism is a funeral. But if it's a funeral know this, it's also a party. It's a new arrival party. The reason the old person has to die is so that the new person can make his or her appearance. In Paul's language, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. A new life with a new leader in a different kingdom. That's what God had in mind for us. When someone gets baptized, that person is buried underwater. That's why we baptize by immersion, which I think was a New Testament way of doing it. I don't have a problem with people who sprinkle, who are poor, or who pour. But the imagery is of immersion. That person is buried underwater and shares Christ's death to sin. His or her slavery to sin ends there. A happy death and a good riddance. The person who is raised from the water has a different identity. He or she is no longer entangled with Adam, but connected to Christ. That person is no longer an adversary of the kingdom of God, but one of its operatives. His or her identity has changed entirely. Perhaps we should reinstate the practice from early Christianity of taking a new name at baptism to help us remember that we've become new people. After Augustine was baptized, his former mistress spotted him on the street and began shouting, Augustine, Augustine. He kept walking as if he hadn't heard her. So she shouted even louder, Augustine, it's Claudia. To which he replied, but it's no longer Augustine. The person we were, whether we feel like it or not, is not the person we are after we've come to Christ. When we're baptized, when we become our true selves, though it takes time and grace for us to figure out what that true self is. Think again of J.C. Dugard. On the day she was rescued, she became her true self, but it took her time to realize that. She kept telling the authorities. She was Alyssa. Like her, our idea of ourselves has been reinforced a million times this is who you are this is who you are this is who you are but it's been a false self when we reckon ourselves to be a new person god's person it is not pretense we're not trying to believe something that isn't true any more than jc was trying to believe something that wasn't true after a rescue She wasn't just pretending that she was J.C. She really was J.C. Just as she had been taken captive and made a slave, sin has made us captive, made us slaves. But Christ has set us free. We may still feel like the slave self, Just as J.C. still felt like Alyssa for a while. And maybe, I don't know, maybe still does on occasion. But we're not. In reality, the slave self never was our true self. No matter how convinced of it we were. Now all of this suggests our success in living out our baptism is not dependent on some Herculean effort of, of willpower, but on knowledge and faith. Did you note the emphasis on knowledge in this passage? Verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 9, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Those are facts we need to know and remember. They are not things that we make happen by our efforts, but that God made happen by his Son. They're not our doing, but they can be our salvation. But we must remember them. Our salvation is based on facts, not on feelings. Our hope is founded on what God has done, not on what we're doing. Baptism would be an empty, meaningless ritual if Christ had not Died on the cross and been resurrected. It's important we know the truth. But knowledge in itself is is not an end. It's not the goal. There's another step. Once we know the truth, we need to take our stand on it. And so in verse 11, Paul tells us to take our stand on it. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And by the way, it will open up. Um, an avenue of exploration when you realize that the word he uses for count yourself dead to sin is the same word he's used over and over again of, Saint, of God crediting same word us with righteousness I'll just let you do that one on your own though in Christ we have been rescued from slavery to sin brought into the free service of God. We've been transferred from where we lived in the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God. Because of Christ, we've switched sides. We've changed our allegiances. And it's important that we act like it. All right, let me draw this to a close. In the first 14 verses of chapter six, there are five or six, depending on how you divide them, statements of fact. In fact, if you pick up a go deep sheet, you'll see this one of the questions. Identify those statements of fact. There are two action statements, things that we're supposed to do. Count yourself dead to sin is the first of those. There are two purpose statements. The purpose statements tell us what God was up to in all this, in Christ's death and resurrection, in our entanglement with him, and in our faith in baptism. The first of those purpose statements found in verse 4, and begins with the words, so that, or in order that, that signals purpose or result, in order that, We too may live a new life. God doesn't want us to get stuck in a life we hate and that He hates. He wants us to be fresh. And full of life, not trapped in the stale world of sin and selfishness. And he knows the only way to this life is through a connection to Christ who died and rose again. You can't reach this life through yoga or mindfulness or diet or exotic vacations or by finding a new spouse. This life reaches you through the work of Christ by God's spirit. The second purpose statement is found in verse six, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Did you catch the so that? That's that signal of purpose again. So that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The body of sin is your body taken hostage and used by sin as its slave where you gotta do what it tells you to do. Paul says it must be done away with. And the word he chose was sometimes used to describe an establishment that was forced out of business. The building it occupied still stands, but the business is gone. That's what God intends for us. The body will still stand, but under new management. And the business of serving sin will be shut down. Okay, I've already alluded to our application. The action we're to take in the light of these things. Verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dare to act like the new person that you are, God's person. No matter what other people think or how much doubt you have in your own ability. Counting yourself dead to sin, but alive to God is not making believe, it's making personal The sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. It's acting like you're on Jesus' side, his kingdom operative, which is what you really are if you've believed in him and confessed him to be your Lord. Or as Paul would have summarized all of that, if you've been baptized. Let's pray. Lord, take this home into where we live and into our work. What we have so much trouble seeing and believing, help us to see and believe that you've made us new. And that we have a new life that's alive to you. And Lord, I ask you to do this for our sakes because it would be so good. But also for the sake of your son who died to make it so. And I ask this in his name. Amen.